Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50% to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50, luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com slash style for free shipping and 365-day returns. Hello and welcome to Sentimental Garbage, the podcast where we talk about the culture we love that society sometimes makes us feel ashamed of. My name is Caroline and I'm begging of you, please don't take my man. And she's not the girlfriend, she's not the mistress, she's the guma. It's Madeline Gray. I had to Google what that meant last night. I'm so glad that for once I shared my episode notes in advance. <laughs> yes, a guma is a mafia term for a mistress. Wow, I should have watched The Sopranos in lockdown like everyone else did. Yeah, I feel like I've been waiting maybe my whole life to use it professionally in a sentence and now I've ticked that off. Yeah, but when I was Googling it, it was suggesting that it was a mistress, but also kind of like another mother, almost a kind of maternal figure. And I liked that kind of dual role. As somebody who's been thinking about mistresses for some time, I imagine it was nice to add dimensionality to your understanding. Absolutely. Yeah. All I've got is like hussy and side chick. So that's a great one. Hussy, side chick. Now guma. Guma. Um, So Madeline Gray, can I call you Maddie? Please. Everybody does. Um, uh, you have written a book called Green Dot that, like, if you're in any way switched on to the book press at all, like, people people have fucking heard of it. You know, it is it is everywhere at the moment and for, like, very good reason in that it's just been a really long time since a literary novel was this funny. Hmm. Uh, I really, really loved it. But when, when we reached out to do a show with you, uh, Mistresses came back immediately. And my favourite favorite kind of episodes to do on the show is not movies or albums it's like concepts that exist in the culture that we just accept as uh, a set kind of bunch of traits about and then we move on from and we don't really delve into enough and so today we're delving into mistresses absolutely i'm very excited i've clearly thought about this a lot for like four years so yeah yes yeah let's so, go. so give me first of all like give me your thesis <laughs> Jesus. <laughs> if there is a unifying thesis, are you just interested in them? The unifying thesis of mistresses <laughs> by Leslie Jameson. Um, yeah, so essentially, like, there's all different kinds of mistress. The one I'm interested in most mm. is the kind of woman who is actually in the relationship with the married man and mm-hmm. does want to be in a relationship with him. Mm-hmm. Obviously, there are other iterations where people are just, like, sleeping together one time and they're also... They qualify as mistresses, I suppose, but mm-hmm. I'm interested more in the woman who's waiting in a liminal space mm. to wait for a man to decide he loves her more than the yeah. other woman that he's with. And like the only thesis that I have as such is that it is a completely, um, it's an undesirable role to be in. It's really, really hard and sad and existentially devastating. And the Moral, the moral repugnance that like immediately comes to the mistress, I think, speaks much more to like heteronormative, like structural mm. things in society than it does to if we just stopped and tried to empathize with that woman for a second. Yeah, yeah, yeah. and like on that great thesis, by the way. <laughs> but and on that, like, I, what I find so fascinating about 
examining mistresses in this exact moment is that like you you and I are in the same industry and I would say that we're making books within the same segment of the same mm. industry which is like literary slightly comic kind of novel very comic let's say very comic hilarious we're, we're funny <laughs> um but um very much this very healthy industry at the moment mm. of a lot of books being published by a lot of women a lot of them between the ages of um you know 25 and 38 kind of thing and uh, a lot of them about this subject about young women uh, becoming mistresses uh, with generally with men much older Mm. your debut Green Dot is about a girl in her first office job who is so like paralyzingly numbingly both bored and just like feels sort of drained and stripped by the kind of work that she's doing that yeah. it's almost like she has to have an affair yeah. to sort of keep the blood flowing in her veins yeah, it's not a great excuse but like an excuse yeah yeah, exactly like for, for Hera the character like I think that if she was in any other context it's like quite unlikely that she would pursue this particular romantic path yeah and I think that's that's like in your first book and in a lot of these books about mistresses yeah. these women are making this choice because in every other realm of their working life, they just feel like an empty husk <laughs> mm-hmm. yeah. where no one is treating them with intellectual respect. There's no kind of suggestion that labor will equate to like value. Mm-hmm. Um, and then there's this prospect of feeling something with a kind of a narrative that they already know so well from popular culture, which is yes. a married dude. So they try and latch on to this thing that they kind of already know off by heart yeah yes yes no that's so and when when you say latch on it's like what I loved about your book is that like even though Hera becomes sort of like the victim of this and, and so does my character Jane in Promising Young Women which which follows a, like it's a different book entirely but a, a similar plot structure mm. um, is that they they end up being sort of victimized by this thing that they end this contract they entered into willingly, mm. and also in the beginning of these relationships, they see themselves as the predator. Yeah, precisely. And so, I think the the tension that I'm trying to play with, and I think that you played with as well, is the space between doing something because it's ironic and like funny, and you think that you understand yeah. it, and therefore it's like a commitment to the bit. <laughs> And then, and then, like that space where you actually commit to the bit so much that the bit becomes your actual life. Like, yeah. can it still be said to be ironic? Probably yeah, not. Probably, <laughs> probably not. Although I, I really do believe that, like, um, you every new phase of your life that you enter, you enter at first ironically. Yeah. Like Dolly always says, this about like people going on cruise ships ironically. <laughs> I actually think I'd love to go on a cruise ship. I'm already there. <laughs> Speaking of mistresses, I just read an extract from, or actually it was Pandora Sykes' newsletter, of um, one of the ex-mistresses of the Playboy Mansion, <sighs> where she described her life at the Playboy Mansion as like being on a cruise ship. It was like that kind of schedule. Yeah. It was like 8 o'clock is movie time, 10 o'clock is sex time, then Hugh has his BLT. Yeah. Oh my God, that sounds just wild. Yeah, Pandora was, because I saw her last week, she was telling me that there was like a kind of almost that kind of level of schedule in the bedroom as well. They'd be like yeah. kind of a rotating like um, sushi train of bodies. <laughs> rotating sushi train of bodies. It's too early in the morning. <laughs> Sorry. <laughs> well, yeah, it's like, and I think using sort of like, you know, Hugh Hefner and the, and the bunnies, like, and that was, I think it, it's, 
it's interesting if you can even class them as mistresses. They exist in the same cultural category as mistresses, even mm. though like sometimes he's married, sometimes he isn't, but he always just has a bunch of them acting on this kind of contract. But it is sort of like the most blown up version of this is that like he is it's mutually predatory, right? Mm. Like he's preying on them because he needs their youth and their beauty and their affection in order to still look like Hugh Hefner. Like Hugh Hefner alone is just an old man in a dressing gown. Yeah. Um but then they're sort of you know well, they're, they're in a financial sort of agreement with them. Absolutely. Really, you know? Yeah. They have housing, they have a yeah. clothing budget, they have food and they have hopefully cultural capital that they can then use after the yeah. mutually beneficial relationship is over. But it's still icky to me. <laughs> it's not good. <laughs> and judging by the slew of memoirs, they don't feel good about it either. <laughs> but I remember that sh- that was so glamorized when I was growing up. That oh, show, yeah. Girls of the Playboy Mansion, I was obsessed with it. Yeah, I know, yeah, completely. Like I remember that those three original girls yeah. so well. And like I remember... They were sort of like... Holly, Bridget and Kendra. Holly, Bridget and Kendra. <laughs> I remember finding Holly so beautiful and glamorous mm. and classy and just like... like Oh, and, and, and like... It may be a stretch to say that it was aimed at young girls, but it, like was, it was... Though. It wasn't mad at getting young girls. Yeah. Like, it had that sort of like opening titles that was so like... It was almost like, like the nanny's opening titles. Yeah. It was like really sassy and bright or whatever. And then there was these like three girls who look like Barbie dolls um, who just like everything that you sort of grown up as being what you should want to be and then you're sort of like they all have their different personalities mm. like and like like Holly's the sort of Hollywood starlet and Kendra's the she's sporty spice she's sporty spice yeah. and then the other one is the other one <laughs> yeah she's the third <laughs> and then it's like and the third one <laughs> No, she's yeah. down to earth. She's cute. She's, she's down kind to of earth. like, how did I end up here? She's the she's the one you're supposed to relate to, right? Yes, she's the one who has like seemingly no ulterior motives. Yeah. yeah. Whereas Holly wants to be the wife. Kendra wants to obviously start her own lifestyle brand yeah. of, yoga, of yoga pants, probably. <laughs> and then the other one's just along for the ride. But yeah, but like feeling very not sus about it. Yeah, exactly. And they would always kind of omit like they weren't doing a big brother you know, adults only kind of style filming where you yeah. could see them having sex, but it was always like kind of cut to black. Yeah. And yeah. that bit was omitted. Or them being like hovering at the the bedroom door yeah. being like, bye now. Yeah, exactly. We're gonna suck off you. Fuck. <laughs> <laughs> I can't believe we all managed to grow up and like have healthy relationships with other human beings I given know. like that was the petri dish that we were grown oh inside. God, of. I'd forgotten about that show right. Jesus. Yeah, it's a lot. But it was the ultimate mistress game show. Yeah. yeah. You know? Yeah, and, and once again in that show, even though there's like a sisterhood to it, like they're all in it together to yeah. give Hugh his massage. Um <laughs> they are they're Rosie the Riveter shit. <laughs> <laughs> there is like a sense that there is like one will be the winner. It is still kind of yes. like um playing women against each other. And that yeah. is so much of what the whole mistress trope is more generally, I think. Um, even the phrase "the other woman" mm-hmm. that suggests that like there's a primary, there's a primary woman, yeah. and she's like the second woman who doesn't have a name, and her relation is just her competition with the primary woman. Yes, yeah, that's her entire yeah identity. Yeah, exactly. So just even the wording of it kind of plays into how mistress tropes are, to my mind, extremely misogynistic. Yeah, yeah, it, but like it's interesting as well because um, h- having written myself two novels that centre around an mm. affair of some kind and I'm a human being I'm not immune to looking on Goodreads you know me neither <laughs> 
But um, I find it really interesting when people leave a review and in that review, they'll sort of include their own personal biases. And that, mm. that bias is often them being like, I find infidelity content incredibly difficult. Yes. Which makes sense in the in the sense of like... Um, infidelities happen to most people yeah. and and, and to, di- to different degrees obviously I mean there's you're having your boyfriend snog somebody in a club or whatever and then there's full scale your husband is having a relationship with somebody yeah, he else he has another family in Ibiza yeah, yeah exactly and she wishes to supplant you yeah. um, and so I do understand why people would stay, stay clear of it but I just I find it fascinating how frequently I read that comment yeah well I mean I, yes I get that a lot in Goodreads things and it's fun it's fun because they're usually the most dramatic posts on Goodreads. They'll yeah. say, like, this woman is an abhorrent trollop. You know? <laughs> One star. Like, I wish I could give it zero. I've got, like, a yeah. lot of those. Um, but, yeah, I mean, I just think that's hilarious because obviously <laughs> if you're, like, judging a book based on how personally relatable yeah. it was for it's you. It's really hard to trust whatever you say afterwards. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> exactly. You're right. It's because so many people have been cheated on or have mm-hmm. had to look after a friend or family member who's yeah. been cheated on. And it is the worst. <laughs> it does feel like absolute trash. But it's interesting to unpack why that is because, yeah. you know, at the end of the day we're all humans with desires and affairs have been happening since the beginning of time. So why still does it hurt so much? Yeah, when statistically you would almost call it inevitable. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> I mean, it's... It's because of the way that relationships are framed, monogamous relationships. That's mm-hmm. the one rule, right? Mm-hmm. You don't cheat. Mm-hmm. You can kind of... It's amazing how much people will accept of their partner that's actually very detrimental. Yeah, yeah. But they won't accept cheating. Mm-hmm. Um, and I... Yeah, I think that's really interesting, the priority list of what's acceptable in a monogamous partnership. It is fascinating, like, it, because it is such an ingrained... And, like, this is with the full thing of, like... If I were cheated on, I would lose my mind. Oh, absolutely. <laughs> like, I, yeah. I'm, not, I'm not saying like oh, I am above this no. on any level. <laughs> no, 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 no. A woman scorned is me. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah, yeah, absolutely. I would be, I, w- I would go off the planet for a year. Yeah. Like I would have to be sent to space. <laughs> I actually just read a really good book about that. It's called Girlfriend on Mars, by the way. Okay. Yeah. Anyway, sorry, go on. Love that. Um, so I'm not, I'm not like... So it's interesting to pick apart something that you still feel like if, you know, you can't, you can never truly be remote from because if it happened to you, you would fucking die. But uh, the the thing of like the cultural rules that we've memorized sort of thing in that like, for example, if I found out that my partner was like, had been stealing 500 quid off of me in small small increments. (laughs) Specific. I don't know why I picked 500 quid. I was like, what's a big amount of money? But not so big that I would notice. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Obviously, I'd notice a 500 quid. You know what I mean? But, um... The yeah, if they were stealing small amounts of money from me that like amounted to a large amount of money over yeah. time. Yeah. And their excuse was, Well, I needed it and you had it. Yeah. <laughs> the, I would get over that quickly. Yeah, you you probably would be able to get over that. And even but even like more in I mean, that's pretty insidious, but more insidious things like what if your partner is just like consistently disrespectful to your yeah. friends and family? And you can just a lot of people just accept that, like, accretion of toxicity over time. Yeah. But as soon as their partner, like, puts his dick in one lady. <laughs> one um, lady? <laughs> it's over. <laughs> Which, I mean, you know, I think is probably fair in that instance because he sounds like a terrible partner. <laughs> but, um, yeah, the different kind of gradations of acceptability. Yeah. yeah. 
Yeah, and I think, and maybe those degradations and those classifications are so much to do with embarrassment and shame. Mm. Because I think that like often in these stories, and both stories that we wrote were from the perspective of the mistress, mm. but the, the stories that are from the perspective of um, the scorned woman, mm. it's it's so much of it is embarrassment about who else knows. Yeah. And that like people know and people are talking about your marriage, this, in, this implicitly, explicitly private thing that people now know the details of. And so I think a huge part of infidelity is not to do, is, is, is obviously to do with one-on-one betrayal, but also public shame yeah absolutely it's kind of like the like maximized equivalent of you know falling over in the street and having your undies on show to everyone it's your private life and it's not just that your private life is out there but that your private life is out there and in that narrative someone's betrayed you yeah (laughs) you're the person who has been lied to by the person who shouldn't lie to you and everyone knows that that's awful everyone knows that yeah yeah like I remember hearing gossip about somebody's affair at some point and, and, and having that terrible feeling of like, I know this thing about a woman's life and I don't know this woman, yeah. but I know more about her life than she does in this specific way. And that's such, it's so unnatural, <laughs> you yeah. know? Yeah, yeah. Kind of an uncanny, kind of gross feeling, um, which leads me to question, in that circumstance, would you ever feel the need to tell the woman? Wow. I would feel the need. Would I act on that yeah. need? God, it's, but that's just like the most elastic question ever because like, what, what about you? How would you feel about it? Well, I don't... See, I think my answer is no, but I've, I've talked about this with a lot of people mm. and a lot of women say, no, I think I would have a duty to tell the woman in question mm. that infidelity is occurring. I personally think that that's the man's responsibility as he is the one who is lying. If if it were somebody in my life, like very an intimate person in my life, uh, I would confront the man. Yeah. And again, we're doing this in a very heteronormative thing. Like women can cheat too, obviously. Yes, they can. (laughs) Yes, they can. That's what (laughs) getting the vote was all about. Um, But I would probably confront the man. Yeah. And and maybe even give him a deadline. (laughs) I love it. Yeah. The ultimatum. Well, here's the here's the, here's the follow-up question to mm, that. Mm. If you let's say that somebody intimate to you is being cheated on and you confront their partner, do you tell them is it better for that person to own up or to stop or to own up and stop? Mm, I think yeah, I mean, I I I have quite an elastic view of of all mm. of this having having had to empathize with yeah. someone who's the the baddie in this narrative. Yeah. I think that um, stopping is the most important part, mm-hmm. to be honest. And I think that it depends on the like severity of how long the affair's been going on. Mm. But if they're telling the truth simply to unburden themselves and it's going to hurt someone a lot more, I don't always think that that's the best thing to do. Yeah. Yeah, I'm, I'm kind of of the same opinion. Mm. Which I know could be like an unsavory opinion yeah. that a lot of people would disagree with. But yeah. It's weird as well when you like what what I'm also fascinated by and what like so you and I have written these novels about affairs. Mm. So have many other women. They have. And uh, of our generation. But and obviously like it's that in itself is not an amazing insight because like an affair is sort of plot-wise it's a very easy framework to work within mm-hmm. because it puts, you know, 
at least two characters on one side of a secret. You know, secrets are great for plot, they're great for suspense, they're great yeah. for driving narrative. And like, it's a very common situation. It's easy to relate to. It's easy to populate your story with like really good, wonderful characters and great dialogue if everyone knows that it's acting on an affair timeline you know mm, so it's mm-hmm. like the reader already understands the beats of the story yeah, yeah they're strapped in like skis yeah then, they're strapped in exactly yeah. and and i think that's why often it's like what you know people come to when they're writing their first novel it, and um but what i'm most curious about is what is it that in the millennial treatment of the affair that is different to how people in the 80s were treating the affair in their books or film you yeah. know well i think I mean, the 80s is a, is a bit trickier because, you know, women were already getting a bit more agency then. Mm. But uh, I think the, the, the difference between the contemporary affair novel and the, the past affair novel is mm. that hopefully the situation that women find themselves generally in society now is they can be financially independent, mm-hmm. they can make all their own choices, hopefully, um, and they ostensibly could not do that tried and true falling for an older person who has money. They don't Mm. need to do it. So they're kind of like acting on a desire that is like the echo of a previous need, if that makes sense. Like in in generations before, Mm. maybe women would sleep with like older men because they had to. Yeah, yeah. Because that made their life more viable. And why jewellery was the most popular mistress gift because it is something that can be sold. They can trade it, exactly. After the affair is over. Yeah, and these days I I would think that that's less (laughs) necessary or I would hope. And so it's kind of like yeah, reenacting a journey that you've heard before. Mm. It feels familiar, I suppose. Yeah. And I think that there is something, for me at least, for my character, but also like in Raven Lalani's Luster or even Conversations with Friends mm-hmm. or um, uh, This Happy by Neve Campbell, all these affair novels, there's a kind of um, knowingness that is enjoyed by the younger woman. Mm. She sees the older man as ridiculous. Yeah, yeah. And she sees his like absolute inability to comprehend that the world is like different for her than it is for him and that their struggles might not be the same she kind of sees that as like beautifully hilarious Mm. and there's a joy in kind of inevitability and in kind of jumping into loving someone who you think is a bit of a fool Mm. Mm -hmm. I don't know if that's Mm -hmm. like maybe just (laughs) my way of saying it no definitely that is that is a that is a tone that runs through a lot of these is like and I think I think there's something that in that that gets to the heart of like millennial self-talk or something, if that's even the word I'm looking for, is um, how we talk to ourselves about ourselves as a generation is that like, okay, we have no property yeah. <laughs> and, and we, you know, we have a, the, there's um you know, that classic thing of being the first generation who, you know, may have less than their parents and, mm. and all that kind of thing. And, and the, the victims of however many different kinds of social downfalls and graduating in the recession and all those things that have affected our generation and have stymied our development economically in comparison to Gen Xers or to boomers. Mm. And that we were like, okay, we we may not, our, our, our self-talk tends to be, we may not have a lot, but we sure do know a lot. <laughs> yeah. yeah, yeah, exactly. That's a, That's it. And so going into relationships with, you know, Gen Xers or boomers being like, 
okay, you may have stuff, but I know stuff about the world and you and I and also I'm I'm highly therapized and like oh, oh, even if I'm not highly therapized, there's a herd immunity happening with my generation yeah. where enough people are therapized that it's drip fed through the generation and therefore we can understand we think we and we therefore we think we can understand the human mind more than any other generation before us and so we're yeah. like I have a handle on this. See, you love me because of the ache in you. Yeah, exactly. You see me the desire for a previous time when you didn't have a mortgage what that says is yeah, yeah exactly <laughs> and then and then like what it actually and in all these affair novels I feel like there comes a point of this of being like you're living in the fringes of a life of a person who has everything and you have nothing precisely it's kind of like um yeah proximity yeah to what you can't have and, and in that way it is masochistic yeah, yeah. right and I think that's what's dry, more than Sex, love, and secrets. I think that's which sounds like an expose on the E channel. <laughs> Sex, love, and secrets. The modern affair novel. Um, uh, it is a thing of like generationally, we feel very robbed mm. or something, mm. and we're trying to like heist back our own jewels yeah, from the generation completely, above. Yes, like, take me to your fucking house. Let's see your wife's shit. Yeah, let me take your linen. <laughs> <laughs> Give me your Aesop hand cream. Yeah. Mm. <laughs> Give it to me. <laughs> Whereas then, like, you look at something like um, Fatal Attraction, mm. obviously. Like, I mean, the, the quintessential insane affair. Glenn text. Close does Unhinged so well. It's so good. Except, I uh, though, I do think that... So if anyone hasn't seen Fatal Attraction, which you really must, mm. um, but I understand that, like, there are people who might be a bit younger who have might have missed the boat or whatever... Um, it is like Glenn Close, his name is Alex, and she's like the big business lady and she's sexy. Yeah, she's a book editor. She's a book editor yeah. and she's a little odd looking, but in a fucking hot way. Mm. <laughs> and it's uh then she meets Michael Douglas? Yes. Yes. Through um through work they start this steamy affair. And then but there's kind of a ranking up attention where you know, he wants he's got obviously got a wife. Um and in the suburbs and all that, it's very New Yorky. And then she comes to him and says that she's pregnant mm. from the affair, which only lasted a weekend, by the I way. Say a weekend, yeah. <laughs> I can't remember how much time passes. You know, it's not long. It's not long. <laughs> yeah. And she says, you know, I'm I'm 35 years old. This might be my last chance to have a baby or whatever. Mm. But then there is a and and like it's it's a, it's such a strange film in that like for maybe two thirds of the movie this character hasn't really done anything wrong. Mm. You know, she she's had sex with someone. And this is this is the interesting thing because it's like how much moral obligation does the mistress have to the other woman? Mm. If he's not considering it, then why should she? Um, she's behaving in a way that's like, she's frustrated because she's pregnant by somebody who's ignoring her and icing her out and being cruel to her. Mm. And you can see her frustrations building. But then in the last third, it like just goes over the edge and it's like she's a fucking psycho she's in your house she's gonna kill you she's killing your pets and now we kill her yeah 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 absolutely it enters full-blown chaos mode i think that yeah Yeah. the phrase yeah bunny boiler was born from that film which is amazing and i use it a lot in my life (laughs) not just for women though it's not gender specific um you could be anyone in boiler bunny exactly but yeah so what they take is this woman that you you can kind of identify and empathize with Mm -hmm. uh and then they turn her into the hugest villain. You can kind of see her going into her Cruella de Vil phase of life, yes. actually. Yeah. Oh, wow, I forgot. Mm. Very close. <laughs> um, but I feel like there was a... 
And maybe these is because and th- there was definitely a bunch of movies around that time that was kind of referred to as like the erotic thriller mm. that tended to hinge on like a sexy woman going batshit on a on a poor defenseless guy who only has his dick to blame, you know. Yeah. Kind of thing. <laughs> yeah. And they're very they're very male authored stories, mm. and they feel very much like a post-divorce era anxiety, I feel, mm. where it's like we're getting, you know, early 80s, more women at work, more divorces happening, more women able to leave the marriages that were making them unhappy. And then the sort of an increase of, of like awareness of family law and this being this sort of threat of being like, if you cheat on your wife, then your wife can divorce you and she can take everything. And the and, and these women who are sleeping with us, they're ruining everything. Oh my goodness, I didn't think of it as government propaganda for the nuclear family. I think it yeah, is. Okay. Yeah. Sorry, it just occurred to me now. <laughs> wow, you heard it here first. You heard it here first. <laughs> um, but no, that's a really good point. And that's the, the whole thing. It is protecting this idea of man, woman, together, anything yeah. that threatens that evil and what is what in these films is threatening that is another woman it's not like anything else in the world which is hilarious no (laughs) or anything wrong with him oh no gosh no i didn't even consider that no No. because but it has to be framed of that like this woman is so sexy that you would be crazy and maybe even dickless not to have sex with her, but she's a predator. Yeah, 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 exactly. And then as soon as she has, like, human needs, wants or desires, yeah. the talons are out. Ew, no. And you're now the victim. Yeah. Which is, like, I can't remember what I was watching. Oh, it was The Fall. I was watching The Fall the other night. You uh-huh. know, Gillian Anderson. No. Um, yes, Jamie I know of it. I haven't seen it. Yeah, anyway, she says that classic line, which is that, like, women are afraid that men will laugh at them. So, yes. Sorry, men are afraid that women will laugh at them and women are afraid that men will kill them. Mm-hmm. And that's kind of the, the huge anxiety of these of these films and these tropes is that men are simply terrified of not of not getting their, their dick in something yeah. and that someone will laugh at them. Or that, like, putting their dick in something may have any kind of cost. Oh, yeah, any ramification at all. Yeah. Yeah. Like, e.g., your wife finding out and taking your money. <laughs> but I really do think that, like, if you look at those movies like Carnal Knowledge or Fatal Attraction or, like, there's a bunch of them. I feel like Richard Gere was in a lot, but they were all the erotic thriller kind of thing. It all comes from, like, the, oh, no, kind of the... the the, the heartbeat behind it is like women can just leave you now if they're unhappy mm. and so that means the other woman can leverage that yeah exactly. and now they all have too much power and they can't know about each other oh my goodness it's just yeah it's all but then and then you have like the the kind of trickle down effect of that vision of an evil woman who mm. comes into other less erotic thriller films like I'm just thinking of the um, brunette harlot in um, in Love Actually. Love Actually, yes. Yeah. Who is apparently, I had a lot of emails about this around the Love Actually episode, uh, very big in Germany. Really? Yes. Well, she's beautiful. She is I beautiful. I hope her career is thriving. Yeah, I hope, because I thought that it was like one of those Billy Zane things where it's mm. like, you will always be Kel Hockley. Yeah, 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 true. But no, she's wonderful. And yeah, that moment where she like, you know, um, widens her legs apart. At mm-hmm. the That, to me, when I was younger and watching that, I was like, oh, evil. That is pure evil. <laughs> Yeah, like I just couldn't even... And then, of course, you get the perspective of um, Emma Thompson Mm -hmm. crying with Joni Mitchell, which is possibly the saddest scene in cinema. In cinema. Yeah. And so then you have it maybe swinging back the other way to... 
or not that it was ever against the wife, but it was more pro-man. Yeah, yeah, yeah. No, the wife is just a sitting duck. That's the thing. And that's yeah. why uh, in, in these uh, narratives, which is just like why that line from Emma Thompson is so powerful. The like, you've made the life I lead foolish, mm. which is to me like it used to be the blanket smoothing and now it's the life I lead is foolish mm-hmm. for, me, for me anyway. <laughs> um, She's so strong. <laughs> God, I love her. And I love that Fast Car is like having another moment. Fast Car? Sorry, I'm just now thinking about Tracy Chapman. <laughs> I'm just thinking Why? of strong songs that I love. <laughs> I was watching the Grammys. Before That's the I funniest non sequitur ever. <laughs> I love Emma Thompson. I love that first car is having a moment. That's so funny. I was thinking about powerful women. <laughs> okay, sorry, affairs. Okay. Yes. Affairs. Uh,. So it's weird because, like, you know, I think you and I were probably extremely young when we both saw Love Actually for the Mm. first time. And um, it is interesting the sort of how young you are when this messaging is imprinted on you. Yeah. The nuclear family is to be protected at all costs. The blameless wife is like her worst crimes are probably in these narratives that she's sort of like sagging and lifeless and about the family and not sexy enough anymore and has let down the family somehow. And we're not blaming her, but we're saying there are reasons he's cheating. It's always the narrative. And then this sort of like viperous woman comes in and we we've been memorizing and been shown that narrative since we were like five. Yeah. And like, I think the most real world you know, uh, version of it is the Bill Clinton, Monica Lewinsky mm. thing. Um, what, how, what was your first memory of that? You're a little younger than I am, so you'd have been even younger than me. Yeah, I don't actually remember it occurring. Mm-hmm. Like, but what I know of it, I, I mean, I just had the scene like playing in my head of you know, like I did not have sexual relations yeah, yeah. with that woman. His denial, mm-hmm. and then I have an image of her being like a very saucy kind of like just gorgeous really like voluptuous woman who I can see why someone like him would want someone like her that was honestly as a child I was like "Mm, I'd tap that (laughs) I'd tap that (laughs) I'd tap that um but yeah and then and then I know I knew from like public discourse that she was like absolutely vilified for a long time Mm. and then in 2017 I was yeah, I was studying at Oxford and I didn't have a membership for the Oxford Union because it was really expensive, mm-hmm. but one of my friends did. And they have like fancy people come and speak at this union and they had Monica Lewinsky come and then she was on her like vindication yeah. tour Yes, at that point. And she was like an anti-bullying advocate mm-hmm. and just was like coming into her prime. Yeah. And so I've... And looking so gorgeous. Looking fierce and so funny. Yeah. And so like... um kind yeah the kindness that she was able to express for the whole thing and the kind of humility and humaneness yeah and I think that she's yeah she's just come out the other side an absolute icon and we all just kind of laugh at Bill Clinton it's so funny isn't it and like in the same with I mean the other famous mistress of the 21st century which is Camilla Parker Bowles oh my god who is currently the queen of England I know okay so this is (laughs) I was at the um, I don't know if I can I can probably say this. Mm. I was at the BBC the other day and I was recording yeah. a radio thing, and they asked me what mistresses in popular culture have like inspired Green Dot, and I started with, "Well, you're queen for one." 
How they like that? They deleted it from the show. Oh my god! Wow. <laughs> so there's clearly still like some kind of like gut reaction. Yeah. That like we can't speak of her in those terms anymore. Though, yeah. But, <laughs> we she, have for fifty yeah, years. It's like now but... she's been like consecrated. We can no longer say that she's. It started in an affair, which I found so bizarre and weird. It's so bizarre and weird. Yeah. <laughs> But I mean, so my knowledge of the of Camilla um, has been, yeah, my mum was really pro Diana, and she was like, I weeps when she died and all that kind of stuff. Yeah. Um, and then I learned about Tampon Gate probably when I was in my teens, and that's oh my God. objectively hilarious. Explain Tampon Gate for anybody who doesn't know about it. Yeah, absolutely. So there were these, um, like, someone tapped Camilla and Charles's like phone conversation, and it was um, published a few years later in. A British newspaper, mm-hmm. and essentially they were chatting, like you know, some sexy kind of erotic chat, where he's saying, "I wish I could like be inside your panties," and then she goes like, "Well, maybe in another life you'll come back as them." And then he's like, "Maybe I'll come back as a tampon." It's like it's like knowing my luck, I'll come back as yeah, a tampon. Knowing my, <laughs> yeah, not even tampon, tampax. <laughs> Drop the brand name. <laughs> it was like the first brand collab in royal history. <laughs> Charles X Tampax. <laughs> um, yeah, and then it was just truly iconic. Um, I find that so funny. It's hilarious. But like, in a way that makes me feel really warmly towards them as a couple. Me too. Like, I think when people are like, I'm so glad that you framed the quote that way because it makes me know that we're friends now because sometimes you hear people talk about the tampon and I don't like the royals I like fuck them yeah. whatever predator is gross like but um in terms of individually like people frame that tampon story is like Charles is a pervert and he like longs to be a tampon it's like no this is like clearly a funny conversation that is a funny cute little in joke between yeah. them we all say stupid things to our partners and like and actually this brings me on to my next point really is that like the the position of the mistress in, like, real life, in pol- political life as well, on some level is her job to humanise a man that seems incredibly remote to us. Mm. Because, like, I remember reading something about Marie Antoinette mm. and one of the reasons that contributed to the widespread hatred of Marie Antoinette, people think, is that, like, Louis the Sixteenth. Was her husband? Yes. I don't know. I just see him as the character in the Sophia Coppola film, Jason, Jason Schwartzman. Schwartzman. So Jason Schwartzman. <laughs> yeah, thank you. <laughs> because he was so uninterested in sex and he was just kind of a little nerd who wanted to be alone with... His keys. The, his, key, his keys. <laughs> um, that he, he didn't ever take a, a royal mistress, but neither did he have much sex with his wife, really. And the the kind of the courtier manners and language and sort of the way the, the way courtly life would then sort of filter down into middle class life and everyday life and to this kind of world where everyone knows a little bit about the royals, even mm. though it isn't written down anywhere, is that like the king would have a wife who would sort of absorb the domestic roles of... Of, of our courtly society like she produces the children she hosts the dinner party all that kind of stuff and the mistress is the person who absorbs the foibles of that man mm. and so we find out things like what kind of he likes to put jam on her toes uh, or whatever and yeah, these are yeah. the things that we find out through mistress communication this is mistress law mistress law yeah so yeah. The, the, fo- the foibles of powerful men is communicated through this mistress law oh, I think that's very interesting it's the, the vector of like 
idiosyncrasy comes from the mistress. Yeah. That is so good. Tiger Woods. Because Tiger Woods is an amazing case golfer. study. Oh. Yeah. <laughs> an amazing golfer. <laughs> so when Tiger Woods was having all these affairs a few years ago, or he's been having these affairs for years and years, but when it came out a few years ago, um, one of his mistresses, who was a cocktail waitress called Jamie, um, they their texts got leaked, or she sold them to a paper... And here, here are the texts. Here's an excerpt of the text. <laughs> Jamie, if we hang out on a Sunday, <laughs> we can watch Desperate Housewives again. <laughs> Tiger, oh God. Jamie, take a break from watching boring old golf. Then nothing. <laughs> Jamie, I mean the amazing sport of golf, winky face. Jamie, an hour later. Babe, I was kidding. Tiger, I know sexy. <laughs> <laughs> I know, sexy. Oh my god, it's so good. Oh, I just love. To me, it's like National Poetry Day. That I know it. Yeah, beats any Mary Oliver for me. That taste. It's so good. I see. I will now have that forever ingrained on my like retinas. Ingrained, lol. But whatever, they're yeah. on my retinas. But for me, it's the Adam Levine text. Yeah, with, um, when he's cheating on Bahati, like why would anyone do that? But anyway, um, and he just says to some woman that he's talking with online, he just says "fuck," <laughs> <laughs> and I just—it's so many U's. It's so good. Uh, yeah. <laughs> to me, for some reason, when the Adam Levine thing happened, I got very prissy. I was like, "No, this is un- this is oh." Is this untoward? Is this this, not acceptable to Caroline? This is beneath me. I don't know. I got very prissy. I think because I was such a big Maroon 5 fan when I was a kid, I was like, don't, like, I know he's probably a scumbag, but don't leave me out of my memories. Oh, no. But But Tiger Woods, I'm just like, golf, ha. (laughs) Cool fact a crocodile can't stick out its tongue. Also, you can get health insurance for a month or just under a year in some states. United Healthcare short-term insurance plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage for you. Learn more at UH1.com. Hey, it's Paige DeSorbo from Giggly Squad. High-quality fashion without the price tag. Say hello to Quince. I'm snagging high-end essentials like cozy cashmere sweaters, sleek leather jackets, fine jewelry, and so much more. With Quince being 50 to 80% less than similar brands. And they partner with factories that prioritize safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. I love that. Luxury quality within reach. Go to quince.com slash style to get free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. Quince.com slash style. Yeah, so you were so saying you- that Tiger Woods had a lot of mistresses on the go at once, right? Yes. So my research from this comes from the three-part Shameless series, mm-hmm. uh, a great Australian resource. It is. I love relating to Australians. <laughs> Every time an Australian comes on this podcast, an angel gets her wings. Um, the Yeah, so they, they did an amazing three-part series, really, really well-researched. But what I found fascinating about it is that this is like, you know, obviously he has been a famous golfer since he was like 13, like something extraordinary. And he was very much shepherded by his father, who was, you know, as many children of prodigies are, just like obsessed with his own lore mm. vis-a-vis Tiger. And the the dad and the um, 
the dad's friend kind of like was on the road with him going to all these golfing tournaments from when he was like really really young like a small kid mm. and they were just constantly just meeting women and taking them back to the Winnebago and just setting up and like the 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 dad's friend did this amazing interview where he was like I let I let him down like I didn't he was a young kid and he was looking to me for guidance and I showed him that this was a proper way to act in the world and <laughs> it's like it's very upsetting yeah but then what I find fascinating about the mistresses of both sports stars and politicians is that they are, unlike being, for example, a rock star or an actor, these are like, for let's face it, for both rock stars and actors, even if you were very busy, you were still doing your job for quite a small amount of your time. <laughs> <laughs> Do you know what I mean? Even if you were like a touring musician, <laughs> I'm sorry. <laughs> How long does a concert go for anyway? Like, come on, that's your Taylor Swift. Like, you're on stage for 90 minutes a day. I'm not saying it's not hard. I'm just saying there's downtime. Yeah, songs are so short. (laughs) Songs are so short. (laughs) I'm just saying there are professions that have downtime built into them. And it's kind of no surprise when a lot of... But not both affairs and, you know, substance abuse and all these things happened. Yeah. Um, But with sports stars Mm. who need to stay in peak physical condition Mm. and also have an enormous amount of pressure and probably also even though Tiger Woods was probably playing golf like eight hours a day still downtime you know yeah and I can see why if you needed to self-medicate because of the pressure of both fame and competition Mm. that you would not you can self-medicate with anything that will compromise your your game yeah exactly and so why you would turn to affairs yeah like I remember a friend of mine was um uh she did like a master's in politics or whatever but she said something like and just a real feminist woman or whatever yeah. and she's like I feel she's like, I've studied every American president and all I've learned is that like if someone's going to be in control of the free world you better hope his vice is women mm. <laughs> yes absolutely which goes back to the idea that it's the mistress's job to deal with yeah the, of the insecurities, strange the foibles. little traits. Yeah, strange yeah. little traits. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, and I, mm, I'm just thinking about Tiger Woods now. But they all thought, these like, at least 12 different women thought they were the only one. Yeah. Because he was texting them all the time. It is very time consuming, yeah. the, the yeah. constant dialogue. And it. It does make you wonder, yeah, how anyone gets gets any work done, particularly if it's someone having an affair who has an office job mm. or like a job that actually requires them to do stuff more than sing a little song. <laughs> <laughs> sing a little song. <laughs> um, it's the thing with because social media exists and texting exists, it can be a constant dialogue like all the time. So I actually just yeah. don't know how Taylor's Taylor's <laughs> Tiger <know>. Woods. <laughs> <laughs> it's easy to actually say one when you mean the other. God, never thought I'd say them as interchangeable. But um, how Tiger Woods was able to do that, like purely time-wise. Yeah. I don't. Yeah. But surely, because all of his texts were quite general, right? They were never really going to anything specific. It was like, you're, se- you're sexy, baby. Like maybe I, he could, I know sexy. Yeah, maybe he discussed Desperate Housewives with all of them. Like perhaps it was the same conversation <laughs> the thing is, on loop. It, during that like time period, it was all anyone was talking about anyway. It was Desperate Housewives. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> so he was probably getting intel from one girly and yeah. like telling it to the next about the characters. And actually it was maybe really beneficial for all of them in well, that way. I wonder who his favourite was. Who his favourite was. It's gotta be Gabriella, right? Be- <laughs> was she the one played by um Eva Longoria? Yes. Yeah. 
she's the like traditionally hot one. They're all hot, but they're all hot. But yeah, yeah. God, she really did turn the world upside down there for a few years, though. Yeah, like we couldn't handle how much we fancied her. As I mean, a... she had an affair as well, actually, with the gardener. Now, I think yes, yeah. Well, this goes back to the um, the sort of gendered nature yeah. of affairs, really. And I remember uh, in Ali Wong's latest comedy special, her saying that there was all these words for mistress and no word for, no dedicated word for men who are the boyfriend of a married woman. Yeah, that's true. But yeah, no, there are no words for that. But usually in that regard, in the narrative, right, it's like a hot younger wife who yeah. is dissatisfied with her hot, yes. sorry, with her unhot rich older partner. Mm-hmm. And she's going for a bit on the side because she's still has sexual desires that her old man partner can't um, yes. deal with, yeah, right? Yeah, that's often the narrative. That's the narrative. Yes. Have you, are you aware of any other narratives in popular culture where a woman cheats and she doesn't cheat with a young hottie? Um, I was thinking about this last night. The film Waitress. Oh, is that one with Kerry Russell? Yes, delightful movie. Yes. Became a musical. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> but that, that whole thing, it, it's, it's interesting because like, I guess all affair narratives, especially when you're supposed to be siding with the cheater, they give you a, a good reason, I suppose. And yeah. in the Kerry Russell thing, it's that she has an emotionally abusive husband. Yeah. It's actually one of the most, one of the earliest and most nuances portrayals of emotional abuse I've ever seen in a movie. Hmm. And maybe kind of the only one in a mainstream rom-com where it feels like she is never physically under threat, but it is always frightening. Mm. Um, and then she uh, she gets pregnant by her husband. She doesn't tell him. She wants to leave him. And she begins an affair with a gynecologist, all while making great pie. I know. I'm sorry. I know you're talking about affair dynamics, but all I can think of is like her making pies. I know. <laughs> <laughs> like the cross hatching. I know. It was so good. It was so such beautiful. a good movie. <laughs> but okay, yeah. I mean, so that makes perfect sense that she would want to... Yeah. Be with someone who offers her some kind of emotional stability and light when she's being treated like shit at home. Yeah. 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 So, yeah, I mean, it's it's always about giving the reason. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. And then we've got, on the other side of the coin, to Anne Boleyn. We gotta, we gotta do the we six gotta, wives. We gotta. <laughs> we gotta do the six wives. Yeah. So, I mean, my knowledge of kind of Tudor history mostly comes from the film The Other Boleyn Girl. Great place to get from. Yeah. But essentially, actually, you probably know it better than me. Can you stop? <laughs> Please, I don't want to pressure myself into saying something wrong. I love Tracy Chapman. <laughs> that is so funny. <laughs> the thing with Henry VIII. <laughs> so, Catherine of Aragon, eight-year age gap or something between them, or there's a significant age gap between the two of them. Uh, we all know she can't have a son. She has Mary. No one likes Mary. She was played by Kathy Burke in the Elizabeth movie. Um, the... Uh, has a bunch of mistresses, um, even ha- legitimizes a son through one of them, mm-hmm. Henry Fitzroy, and uh, then Anne Boleyn, uh, sorry, then first Mary Boleyn comes along and she is one of the many. And she, as per the Philippa Gregory book, The Other Boleyn Girl, which I've read so many times, <laughs> and the film, which is not bad, considering it's two American actresses. <laughs> I know, but if you're going to get Scarlett Johansson and Natalie Portman, yeah. yum, yum. Yum, yum. <laughs> I feel like that's very the time as well, that that was like the ultimate choice. Yeah, That's so true. <laughs> um, and uh, yeah, and, so Mary, and, and she's sort of um, working within this framework of like, I have been selected... I'm enjoying this. I'm enjoying the spoils of this, but I will go back. I will do what my family says and go back to my husband by the end of it. She has two children with him. 
Uh, and then her sister Anne, who's sexy and who has been in France, and is played by Natalie Portman, <laughs> um, comes back from France. She she becomes the mistress of the king, but she never. I mean, according to both historical lore and the fictional lore that we've you know so much Amberlynn content has been made over the years, she never actually consummated it until they were married because she was always aiming for the big prize, right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. She had, exactly, she had her eye on the prize and that's what differentiated her from her yeah. sister who was just doing a little hanky-panky because it was asked for. Yeah. Whereas and that's Natalie Portman <laughs> obviously has that Hawkeye. Yeah. yeah. I just love that book so much. Yeah. I love old Philippa Gregory. I love her. <laughs> Um, we have a we have an episode on that book, by the way. It's scroll back to the almost beginning if anyone wants to listen to it. But um, the what's interesting about that is then like Anne Boleyn gets the prize, hmm. but she's also murdered. Yeah, <laughs> but also then sets up one of the great like monarchs of British history with Elizabeth I, obviously. But um, it is that sort of interesting poetic. That's why I think that's why like nobody knows shit about Henry V. We all know about Henry VIII because of all those wives are fucking interesting. That's true. And they are the gateway to the foibles that make an office which, which is King of England, which seems so remote and historical. They make it pure and weird and real. Yeah. But were you about to say like in the public imagination that Anne Boleyn being beheaded is kind of like poetic justice for the mistress? Is that where you were going there? Maybe. Cuz I think that yeah. might be right. The reason yeah. that people love that story so much is that she was like canny and like Machiavellian yeah, yeah. and like wanted to um, go above her station of mistress and go into the role yeah. of wife, which is like seen as a trajectory that is not the natural way of things. Exactly. And because she like overstepped her mark. Yes. It's only fair that she then gets cut down, literally. 100%. And like, it makes me think now because, like, in your book, your, your character, Hera, is like constantly living on this knife edge of like, he's about to leave her. And do you know what? And I mean, I mean this as the hugest possible compliment I could give another author. Mm. It reminded me of Flowers in the Attic. <laughs> What is Flowers in the Attic? Flowers in the Attic is a 80s pulp novel. That's one of my favourite books <laughs> okay. of all time. Okay. Maybe 70s, actually, written by Virginia Andrews. And it's about, you've probably heard about it before, it's like about these four kids who are locked in an attic by their mother on the promise that their grandfather, who is a millionaire um, and lives downstairs, will die any day now and then they will be free and they will have all the riches they could possibly want. Okay. And then they end up locked up there. It, they, they, they they go up there and like it'll be one week, one week only, and then the best life you've ever had for the rest of your life. And then three and a half years pass and their entire adolescence pass. And in that time, they go from being these golden children to being like these sort of incestuous, incestuous very warped, very traumatized, almost dead. Oh like, my it's my favourite book. <laughs> And that was a pulp novel, as in, was that popular? Unbelievably, yeah. Wow. Dude. I gotta read it. Get the audiobook. Yeah. You will die. Okay. Okay. So you're saying that Hera reminded you of a goblin incest child? <laughs> yes. <the> go- <laughs> Her name is Kathy Dollenganger. Um, but uh, yeah, because it is this thing of like, Somebody who is told that, like, they only will have to wait a short time and then that sort of wait just keeps getting drawn out and drawn out. And you as the reader know that, like, oh, my God, you're going to be waiting forever. Like, you're going to yeah. you're going to waste your precious youth and become, like, un, like recognizably warped by this wait. Yeah. And and you don't know that because you're living a day to day. But I'm seeing it zoomed out and I'm, like, screaming for you to run. <laughs> like, yeah, yeah, you know? yeah, absolutely. I completely... Yeah, so like I was definitely thinking of 
and I think Harris says this in the book at some point, or one of his her friends maybe, but like the sunk cost fallacy, which is essentially yeah. the plot of the book you just said, which yeah. is like... But with incestuous siblings. Yeah, which is better and more fun, maybe. <laughs> <laughs> okay. Um, but like the idea that if you're waiting in a queue for tickets and you've yeah. already been waiting for an hour, even if like the tickets are like almost certainly going to sell out like before mm-hmm. you get... you. You, you think, I've already been there for an hour. I don't want to waste that hour, so I'll keep waiting. Era so, tour. Yeah, exactly. So, People have been online on the fucking thing waiting for their place in the queue to jump and then they get ahead of the queue and it's like, that'll be $260, please. I wish I got to that step. I still haven't got tele tickets and I'm really upset about it. So. I just feel like if I'm meant to be there, the opportunity will present itself. I keep thinking that, but it's in Sydney next week. It's next oh. weekend. Maybe you're not going to go then. If anyone's listening, I hope it comes out. The whole thing. I need tickets. <laughs> I'm just, you know what? I love Taylor Swift. I've done like four episodes on that bitch on this podcast. I love that girl. But like, I just feel like she is going to be touring forever. We're the same age. I'll see her. <laughs> I don't care. <laughs> That's very true. I mean, okay, you know what? No, I'm not going to go into this. Okay. But it is the Eras tour and it's really important. But that's all it I'll is, say. No, it is important. I agree. Yeah. But um, so, yeah, the idea of waiting for something that promises nothing is certainly like the main kind of mm. push of my book and the book you describe and a lot of these narratives of young women waiting for a man to leave his partner or a woman or whatever, waiting mm. for anyone to leave their partner. And I think maybe you asked before what makes contemporary affair novels different Mm -hmm. and I'm gonna like zoom out for a sec Mm. because I see that structure that waiting pattern being your constant state of being as kind of like a metaphor for existing in what there's this great theorist called Sarah Ahmed calls like the promise of happiness that like neoliberalism sells us. Oh, what's her book called again? It's been recommended to me so many times. Uh, she's got so many good ones. The latest one I think is called The Feminist Handbook, but she literally yeah. has one called The Promise of Happiness. Okay. Um, there's heaps mm-hmm. and they're all wonderful. She lives in Britain. She's originally, she grew up in Australia. But um, it's this idea that, and it's kind of coincided with another theorist, Lauren Ballant, who I love. The idea that in kind of neoliberal capitalism, we're sold the idea of like a trajectory of our lives, Mm. which is get promotions, get better house, have children, you know. Lock children Uh, in an attic. And then when you get there, then you want the next thing. Mm -hmm. Like you're never satisfied. Yeah. And the idea is that you'll forever be on the the treadmill of um, wanting and not getting what you want. And that's just the way that our life is structured in capitalism. Yeah. And I think that, yeah, the kind of waiting for a man or partner who, even when you get him, probably won't give you what you want. Yeah. There's a real similarity there. I think it's like an uncanny reflection. It is an uncanny reflection. Yeah. 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 And it also, it narrows the focus of wanting. I guess. Mm, yeah. Like if you look at Hira in your book, this is somebody who is, uh, you know, she's got like three degrees. She's like utterly rudderless. She's living with her dad. She has no instincts or intentions to really find a job that is rewarding to her, which is interesting because it's like, again, it's very much a millennial um, lodestone is that like we must find work satisfying and pleasurable. Yeah. Which is fucking weird. Yeah. But, um, and, uh, uh, she has none of this, but she, the only so she's living in this kind of amorphous glob of mm. of strange emptiness and wanting, and so in order to, it's a bit like you know when you have a baby, your only problem is your baby. When yes, you have a drug addiction, exactly. all you care about is where your drugs are coming from, and when you're in an affair, 
your life has a kind of an, an odd purpose. Yeah, precisely. And there's the, you wake up, your eyes go to your phone, have their yeah. message, you know, and you make yourself proximate to them at all times in case they have a pocket of time, you know. Yeah. And suddenly, yeah, you're totally right. Everything else kind of doesn't matter. And that can feel great, comforting and great. Yeah. Yeah. Why people join cults, why people are into religion, you know? Precisely, yeah. It's just the religion of love. <laughs> of wow. love. Wow. <laughs> you got a fast car. <laughs> All right. To to wrap up, I'm really interested in asking, um, when you started writing this book, I feel like I feel like the best books are books that go into where the author goes into it with a question and comes out with no answers but more questions. Mm. What what how do you feel like your thought process around affairs evolved while both writing, editing and putting this book out into the world? I think that when I started writing the book, I was I was more like earnestly invested in the characters themselves. I wanted mm. to see how this particular character mm. would go through the trials and tribulations of waiting for someone that wasn't going to give them what they wanted. And I think writing it and now talking about it, it's just opened up so many more like philosophical and ideological questions Mm. about like everything we've been talking about on this podcast and like what is desire? What do we owe each other? Yeah. How does capitalism literally like reinforce the relationship narratives that determine our lives? Yeah. And that's that's been an absolute joy for me because I feel like when you're writing something, anything that you – if you're looking for connection, any two points can always connect. And mm-hmm. so if you go in with a, a journey and then you read another book, then you can relate that to what you're writing yeah. and it becomes like a whole matrix of ideas. So it's been really wonderful for just a, a story about two people to kind of blossom out into a lot more than that. Yeah. That's why we do this job. <laughs> No, I, I I love that you said that because I feel like we're in this very unique publishing phase at the moment. Maybe it's not that unique. Maybe it feels just unique because we're the ones experiencing it. And of, we're very unique. And we're very unique of like, um, uh, I, I've, I've before meeting you today, I read a few interviews that you've done and press that you've done, and I've I've felt maybe the interviewer treating you and maybe this is just me just projecting of being like you gals mm. you gals are all lots of you gals yeah you gals sad gals you sad yeah you yeah. sad gals and yeah. like do you feel like this current iteration of like and I guess you could call it like the post Sally Rooney mm. of, uh, the kind of the landfill Sally sort of thing of like every <laughs> every publisher wanting to mimic the success of a phenomenon, but also there being lots of women who write like that kind of, you know, or or not, mm. or even about those sort of subjects. And so it gets grouped into this sort of marketing term when what it actually is, is what you just said, which is a matrix of ideas of people who have experienced the same things as a generation and want to unpack them. Yeah, precisely. And I mean, it is... Yeah, like there was so many friends sent me a headline the other day that an Australian newspaper did and it was just from Sally Rooney to Lana Del Rey, why are millennial women so sad or something like that? And then it had just a giant picture of me like 
<laughs> it, was, it was amazing. Um, but, yeah, this this kind of the flattening of yeah. to suggest that this is a genre that, like, women are writing because it's marketable yeah. is so, like, demeaning. It's unbelievably <laughs> and demeaning. Insulting. Yeah. Um, the reason that women are writing about it are because these are the ideas that clearly are on our minds or on yeah. these writers' minds. Um, and, yeah, just to be called a sad girl novelist is – it fucking kills me. Yeah. And it's so infantilizing. I'm so glad that you brought this up. Please, yeah. Please speak more. Because <laughs> I've heard that the, the sad girl th- – and, like – I, I love a meme as much as anybody else. I love the girl dinner. I love the girl mats. But like yeah. at some at some point, you kind of want to say like, I'm I'm fucking good at my job and I I try really hard at it. Stop referring to me as a child, <laughs> like yeah, and a sad child, a sad child. <laughs> it's really strange. And then I as you know, if you gender swap it, then you've got sad boy novels. Yeah, so, you know, imagine like David Foster Wallace being called a sad, a sad boy, boy novel. Ben Lerner, sad boy novelist. <laughs> yeah, you know, yeah. like. She, you know, and I'm thinking all the sad boys that I'm... Tony Soprano is a sad boy. <laughs> like, it doesn't... Fucking the protagonist of Camus the Outside, a sad boy. Sad like, boy. And it just, Love me a messy, chaotic, sad boy. Exactly. So it, it just... It doesn't, doesn't work if you yeah. flip it gender-wise and you can yeah. see the kind of um, more insidious misogyny that's going into the term. Yeah. I mean, it does... In publishing, obviously, trends are helpful because mm-hmm. then you can say, if you liked this, you like this, the kind of Amazon algorithm of recommendation. And, and it's wonderful. Which and, is helpful. Yeah, and, and it genuinely does mean that, like, a rising tide will lift all boats. You yeah, know? precisely. That is, yeah. yeah, but um, the suggestion is then if you're seen as existing within a certain remit of literature mm-hmm. or type of writing. Or even are Irish. Or, yeah, <laughs> even or, yes, exactly. <laughs> Uh, Irish, Irish woman, my gosh. <laughs> my gosh. Um, then your point of view is presumed to be the exact same and your writing style as well. Yeah. And it's like, yeah. I think even though I'm dealing with, I guess, issues that are part of popular consciousness and, mm. and the discourse, I personally think my writing style is quite idiosyncratic. Like, it's very idiosyncratic. <laughs> so I just, it's it's really interesting to, to see how... Uh, it's flat flattening is so convenient to do and people don't think about the ramifications of that flattening yeah yeah complete and it's not even just the flattening of all authors together it's the flattening of all media to one like yeah the amount of book proofs that i get sent that say for fans of fleabag i've got that a lot it's like a tv show yeah <laughs> it's like, I, like lovely I love fleabag. lovely <laughs> genius woman but yeah. like not a novelist, you know, like... Yeah, yeah, exactly. And, and so this kind of implication that it all can just be squashed in together and given the vague headline of, like, millennial sadness. Yeah, and it's depriving things of, of their fullness because there yeah. are lots of books that I have actually hesitated to read because the kind of press yes. on the back looks um, generic. Yeah. Which these books are often not. aren't, yeah. Often are not, yeah. Yeah, like, like This Happy by... Is it Neve Campbell? Yes. And, you know... Luster and Conversation with Friends. There are three wildly different yes, novels. Yes, they are. Yet all compared to one another. Yeah, exactly. You've got like, yeah, a young black woman in New York having an affair with a with a married guy. Yeah. You've got someone involved in like a kind of four-way relationship in Dublin. Yeah. And then you've got a young woman who's a PhD student having an affair with her professor over a very short amount of time. Looking back, now she's married. These are different stories. Yeah, yeah. 
Come on. <laughs> anyway, feels very cleansing to rant about it, yeah, that. Yeah, that was good. Thank you. Get it out. <laughs> um, is it too soon to ask what you're working on next? No, no, that's okay. Um, so I literally, this is not that interesting to anyone, but I, I've been doing my PhD for like four years and I just handed it in. So that's actually a big oh, burden congratulations. off my Thank you. So, but that's really good. And then also I'm writing, I'm beginning to write the next novel, but it's very early days. Amazing. Well, it sounds like you're very fucking busy and I'm so <laughs> delighted for your success. Thank you. It's wonderful to see just someone really talented and really nice oh. get things. <laughs> Thank you. Well, I feel the same about you. I was telling Caroline as we just began ah. this that she was like, nice to meet you. And I was like, we've met. No, <laughs> yes. I like a bitch. Yes. No, it's okay. Because years and years ago, I was a big fan of your work and, and she just, um, Caroline had just come out with Promising Young Women and I went to her like book launch in Soho and I stayed in a youth hostel so I could go oh. there and so I'm just thrilled to be here today. It's so cool. Like because when I was emailing you about like what we're going to talk about today I was like better explain to her like the context for me and who I am and pocket and then you were like yeah we've met. I was like oh shit. So, okay I was I was like can you sign my book? It was not. <laughs> Did I write anything funny or it was just too maddy? Oh my god I don't know I have to go back and okay, find it. All right. I, hope it I hope it was at least funny. <laughs> No, it was great, and it's been amazing to watch your career. I also loved the Rachel incident so much. Oh, thanks, man. You're welcome. I'm so glad that we're in the matrix of ideas together. Yeah, me too. All right, bye, everyone. Bye! <laughs> Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And is all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com pack for free shipping and 365-day returns.